This morning's scripture reading comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your, or in your Bibles. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and also that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We're going to stay in our Bibles in that text, in that passage in Ruth chapter 4, so stay with me there. Today's a big day, and I'll tell you why. Today's the Lord's Day. He lays claim on today. Today is for God's glory, and today is for our good, and we are gathered today to be reminded of the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the forgiveness of sin that is found in Christ alone. The Lord's day is a blessing not just for the worship and glory of God, but for the good of his people so that we would be reminded of the truth that there is redemption for sinners in Christ the Son and that we would rest in that truth and rejoice in it all day long. What we're doing this morning is more significant than anything that will happen the rest of this afternoon or evening. What we're doing this morning is we're reminding ourselves of Christ's victory over sin and death. Christ's accomplishing redemption on our behalf when we could not do that. There is no greater victory than the victory that Christ achieved at his cross on Calvary's Hill. So I've entitled this morning's sermon, Redemption is Accomplished. Redemption is Accomplished. Look with me again at Ruth chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. And the first thing I want you to see in this text is that redemption is initiated. Redemption is initiated. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate 
and sat down there. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. So where was Boaz before he went to the gate to sit down? He was at the threshing floor, if you recall, from chapter 3. And he had just been proposed to uh, that evening before by Ruth. Ruth came and said, essentially, will you redeem me? Will you uh, be my husband? And will you redeem Naomi? Will you redeem the land that belonged to her, her husband, Elimelech? And he made a promise, and Ruth went back uh, that morning to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and shared with her not only the grain that Boaz had given her as a symbol and a sign that he would fulfill his promise, but she also shared with her that Naomi uh, was given grain that she would not be, she would not go empty, that she would, uh, that Boaz was going to fulfill not only her appetite for food, but fulfill her need to be redeemed. And so now Boaz seemingly has gone straight from that threshing floor that morning to the gate of the city. In many ancient towns at this time, there was actually two gates. There was an outer gate that was primarily used for defense against enemies and their attack. And then there was an inner gate that served as an open space for people to gather and a lot of business was done in this inner gate area, particularly legal and judicial business. And so Boaz has business to do, and he goes to the gate. And it says that he sat down there. And he's not just sitting down and waiting on the right people to show up. He's sitting down. This is a symbol. It is a recognition that Boaz has come for legal business purposes. That's what it's signifying. But it just so happens to be that he's not only in the right place, he's in the right place at the right time because the right people are coming by. So the text says, And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, this is not a coincidence that the Redeemer, whom Boaz had spoken to Ruth of the night before, the Redeemer, who was ahead of Boaz in terms of the line of redemption, he was the nearer Redeemer. It's not a coincidence that this brother happens to be walking by the gate at this particular time after Boaz is set down. This is God Almighty, the Redeemer in heavens above, working a redemption in Israel right here. This is God, the Redeemer, not only navigating Boaz's steps to the gate, but actually navigating the nearer Redeemer's steps to Boaz so that redemption would take place that morning, just as Boaz had promised Ruth. The Redeemer remains anonymous. He's referred to here as friend. But here he is. And there's also 10 other men gathered, the elders of the city. They're gathered as witnesses to the legal transaction, to the redemption that is about to take place. And the, the, the uh, importance of them being there is uh, important to, that you know. Why did they need witnesses? It's because they didn't have written records back then. They weren't recording these things by writing it down. They had to have people as witnesses present for this transaction to be approved, to be verified. And then the redemptive opportunity is laid out. Boaz just lays out to the near redeemer the situation at hand with Naomi and Ruth. And look at verse 3. He says it. He says, he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to, us, to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, buy it. In the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me 
that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Well, some new information is revealed to us here. The new information is that there is land for sale that is in some way in possession of Ruth or of Naomi. It suggests to us as readers that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, had not sold his land before he and his wife and his two sons took that journey from Bethlehem to sojourn in Moab. Now, we don't know exactly why he didn't sell the land, but there was a famine in the land, and so it's possible that it was because it's hard to sell land in the midst of a famine. People aren't interested in property. They're interested in food. Maybe the price that he would have been offered for that land as he was going to leave was so low that it just it wasn't even, didn't make sense, wasn't even worth selling it for that cost, that price. There's no indication, though, in this text or in the whole book of Ruth that the land had been taken over by someone else. So it's very likely that this land, for 10 years, had been laying fallow, meaning it had been untouched, uncultivated. And during the harvest season, which has just come to an end... No one's interested in buying land that's not been cultivated. It's not fruitful land, right? But now, this is not only the perfect time to sell land at the end of the harvest, leading up to the preparation to a new harvest next year, but this is a good time to buy land as well. According to the land inheritance laws in Leviticus 25, Naomi had to find someone who was Elimelech's next of kin to sell the land to or to transfer that estate to. Numbers 27, verse 8 through 11 says this, that if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan. And he shall possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule as the Lord commanded Moses. So what we see in this text in Numbers 27 is the appropriate steps of transferring an estate to the appropriate parties. And so this is basically how it goes. Elimelech, if he died, was to give it to his sons. That's who the land would go to, right? Number one. Well, what happened to his sons? They died in Moab. No sons, no daughters. So it would have gone from son to daughter, but there are no daughters. And then it goes to Elimelech's brother. Now, we don't know if Elimelech has a brother or not. But let's say he doesn't. Well, then it would go to Elimelech's uncle. We don't know if he has living uncles. Let's say he doesn't. It would then go to the nearest relative or the nearest kinsman redeemer of his clan. Boaz and this no-named redeemer are somehow related and they're related to Elimelech. We don't know exactly how they're related, but we know that they're connected to Elimelech, and we know that this redeemer is ahead of Boaz in that transference of property, legally. So, Boaz informs him, there's an opportunity to redeem land. It's Naomi's. She's selling it. Will you buy it? If you will, great. If you won't, I'm next in line. That's what he's putting forward. Redemption is initially accepted by this man, this Redeemer. And so for any of you who've been tracking with us from the beginning and you're really hoping, oh, I want the love story to end with Ruth and Boaz, this could lead to a little trepidation. You're like, oh, man, I thought they were going to get married. I like their love story and everything. This is great. Favor in the field is beautiful. But just stay with us because 
It doesn't end up that way. Spoiler alert. Uh, it doesn't end up the way of, of Ruth marrying this redeemer ahead of Boaz. Boaz and Ruth do get married, and that's good news. But, but here he does say initially that, that redeemer ahead of him. He said, I will redeem it. That's a verbal commitment. Land would have been very difficult to obtain. And at this time and in this culture, with their laws, the only way you obtain land is through family. So that makes it even more. I mean, it's not being sold on the open market, right? So to obtain land would be a great thing. And this redeemer goes, I'll redeem it. Well, I bet you will, buddy. This sounds good. The famine's over. The harvest has ended. And now you want more land. That sounds great. But then before the deal is sealed... Boaz shares the fine print, and it includes Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. So redemption is ultimately declined. It's rejected. That's my second point. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So it's not just that he gets another wife, it's that he gets another wife to, for the purpose of perpetuating the name of the dead for their inheritance, not his own inheritance. So let me, let me illustrate this for you. Have you ever seen a high school football player who was a star athlete, All-American, and on signing day, he's got all the hats in front of him. And he's, he's been a stud quarterback all year from whatever town in Podunk, you know, Kentucky. And he's picking up a hat to declare to everyone, this is where I'm going next year to be the starting quarterback of, let's say, University of Kentucky. So he's got the hat in hand. The Redeemer is about to put it on. I'll redeem it. Boaz shares like a coach. Hey, by the way, um, the University of Kentucky just signed another quarterback. He's better than you, and he'll be starting next year, not you. Whoa, putting that hat back down, right? I'm going to the University of Alabama or wherever else. That's what's essentially happening here. This information is causing this man to go, this redemption opportunity seemed beneficial to me, but now it seems costly to me. I have to marry a Moabite? I think that Boaz introduces Ruth as the Moabite because he may have been counting on this man, this redeemer, having an anti-Moabite leaning like many of his compadres in Israel at this time. But regardless, he knew the responsibility of perpetuating the name of the dead. And he knew that that would threaten his inheritance. And so this would be what you would call a major con in the pro-con list of choosing to redeem the land and Ruth. A son born to Ruth by this man, the Redeemer, if he were to follow through, would get the land, would get the property, uh, that the Redeemer was going to redeem when the Redeemer died. And so what that means is that property would not go to his children. It would go to the children, the child, the son of him and Ruth. So it affects his inheritance. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, it touches on the, the law that's related to this. I'm going to read this to us. It says this in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is what is called uh, leveret or leverate marriage. It literally means it's a marriage with a brother-in-law, which might sound weird in today's customs and culture. Uh, the word leveret has nothing to do with Levi or the tribe of Levi. 
The, the word lavir is Latin for a husband's brother. And so what this is, what we see here in Deuteronomy 25, is a moral obligation that a brother would have to his brother who has died and left a widow with no child. It is a moral obligation to fulfill this duty. Verse 7 gets into the shame if one was to not fulfill the duty of a levir. It says this, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go, shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Bizarre. <laughs> but here it is. What's the point? The point is that it is a shameful thing to neglect the responsibility of building up the house of your brother who is deceased, who's been, who has died and left his wife a widow with no child and no one to carry on the name of their family. So what is Boaz doing? Just back up from this. Just think about this with me. He is challenging this man to establish the name of the deceased and he's appealing not to the letter of the law, necessarily, but to the spirit of the law. It's something that he doesn't have to do. If he doesn't do this, he'll go to prison. It wasn't like that. It was, if you don't do this, it's not an honorable thing to not do this, to not carry out this moral responsibility to, the, to this woman here, this widow. So Boaz is essentially saying, hey man, I am prepared to man up and do not just the legal thing. Oh sure, I'll redeem the land. Boaz is saying, I'm prepared to do the right thing. Even though it will cost me, even though redemption will cost me something, my inheritance something, I'm willing to redeem two widows. How about you? He's not. He's got four options, basically, this redeemer ahead of Boaz. Again, while he's not legally bound, he could have accepted the moral responsibility to marry Ruth and perpetuate the name of the dead and the land, right? This would have been honorable, but it would have been costly to him, okay? That's option one. Option number two, he could accept the responsibility of a redeemer of the land acquire it, but reject the moral responsibility of a redeemer of Ruth to marry her. This would have cost him his reputation. It would have shown him to not be a very honorable, respectable man. Thirdly, he could say, I will redeem both the land and Ruth. I'll perpetuate the name of the dead. But then as he got closer to the wedding day, he could have said, you know what, no, I'm, I'm not interested in marrying that woman, and backed out. And maybe less people would have heard about that dishonorable thing, but, but he could have maybe done that. So that's a third option. Fourth, and this is the option he chose, he could reject the offer entirely. The land and the Moabite widow to be his wife. And in so doing, this wouldn't be irresponsible necessarily. It would be a reasonable choice. 
It would have been the safest option socially for him, avoiding the shame, and also personally for him, the financial burden of caring for two widows. So this is what the unnamed man chose to do. He chose the fourth option. He chose the easy out. Look at verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, well, I cannot redeem it myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This is comical to me. He says, I cannot redeem it twice. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You don't want to redeem it, but you can redeem it. Why? Because it will affect your inheritance. It will affect you negatively. You're not willing to pay the cost of their redemption. You could, but you don't want to. I mean, I wish we knew his name just to call him out by name and say, it's shameful that you won't just admit that, hey, I can, but not interested. A great theologian of our day by the name of Andrew Babb once said, he said, this man once, this man, this redeemer, he does what is right in his own eyes, which is very common in the judges era. Instead of doing what is right in the sight of God and man, he does what's best for him, not for them the two widows. Another great theologian of our day, Nathan Bogue, said this recently to me, Boaz is motivated by love, which is selfless. But this man is motivated by fear, which is selfish. Both these men are right. The Redeemer is very similar to Orpah, Ruth's sister. You remember her? They're similar in this way. They are logical. They're factual. They chose, one, chose not to redeem Ruth because of what it would cost him. Orpah chose to go back to Moab to find a Moabite husband and not follow and care for Naomi to Bethlehem because of what it might cost her. It seemed better for them. They're reasonable people, friends. This was their decision. So what's beautiful is that both Orpah and this no-name redeemer are not just these evil, wicked people. They're normal people. And so the faithfulness and the kindness and the loyalty of Boaz and Ruth are being compared not to these evil, wicked people, but to these normal people, suggesting that their kindness is so much greater than even the baseline of what people would say, That's reasonable. That's what's happening here. The irony is that this man who sought to preserve his own life, his name, his inheritance, he's forgotten. Who? A friend. That's what we call him. Who? No name. And out of the Bible he goes, bye. But Boaz, he chose to preserve the lives and the names of others two widows, and the name of the dead. And we remember him to this day. Boaz was his name. There are times in your life and mine where you you will have an opportunity similar to this. In this sense, God will present you with an opportunity where If you step forward, it will be a sacrifice to you personally. It will cost you something, but it will bless someone else in your life greatly. It might even preserve life. Mark 8, verse 34 and 35 Jesus calls a crowd to himself. And friends, he never did that. They came to him with no invitation because he was doing amazing things in his life and ministry. He spoke with authority. He cast out demons. He healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame. 
So people came to him. But in this moment, he says, come to me, listen up. You want to be my disciple? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that's essentially what Boaz has done here. He says, I'm going to put aside my life and my preferences and what's good for me, and I'm going to live on behalf of others. The nearest redeemer was unwilling to pay the cost of redemption. Boaz was willing, and his right of redemption was transferred to the right man, the honorable man. Boaz was his name. Look at verse 7. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, there's the sandal again, and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. The narrator's comment here in verse 7, saying this was the custom in former times, is suggesting that when the narrator or when the writer of the book of Ruth wrote Ruth, this custom with the sandal and all its weirdness was not taking place presently, okay? But it was taking place presently then, and so that's why the narrator is putting this in there. It is for the people of his time, and it's for the people of our time because we don't do that. At least I haven't heard of that recently, have you? The sandal, it's symbolic of something. It's symbolic of the abdication of a role and responsibility of this Redeemer. But I, I do think that there's more here to the sandal. In the Old Testament, to set foot on land was associated with ownership of that land. Joshua chapter 1 verse 3 says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. It's yours. It's, you own it. And we also see sandals discussed in the Old Testament in reference to ownership of land. Think about Exodus chapter 3. Moses at the, burn, the burning bush. I'm going to read to you verse thir- 4 and 5. God called to Moses out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For, or why? For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Meaning, it's holy. It's set apart. It doesn't belong to you. It's mine. Where was he standing? Mount Sinai. And we'd see later in Exodus the smoke and the fire at Mount Sinai when God was revealing his covenant and bringing his law to the people. That's his mountain. Joshua chapter 5 verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. Why? For the place where you are standing is holy. It's not yours. So both removed their sandals. It was God's ground. There's ownership associated with where the the sole of a foot steps and with the sandal as symbolic of that. So with the transference of the sandal from the Redeemer, the nearer one, to Boaz, the deal is finalized now. That, That is the public declaration. It would be the ink on the paper, so to speak, of saying, done deal. Boaz now is the Redeemer. It is his role and his responsibility to carry out the roles and responsibilities of redemption here with Naomi, the land, and with Ruth. And Boaz is willing. And he makes a public declaration of it. And that's my third point. Redemption is declared. Look at verse 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that 
I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now, I think it's significant. He begins with this day, and he concludes with this day. It takes us back to chapter 3, verse 18, when Naomi assured Ruth, saying, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man, speaking of Boaz, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Here he is, following through. He's done it. He's declaring it. Naomi is redeemed. The land has been bought. She has rest in her old age. She will have livelihood. She will be cared for for the rest of her days in her old age. She has a covering. There is a wing that is over her. Praise God. Ruth is redeemed. The young Moabite widow who gave up her life in kindness to Naomi to care for her in her old age. She has strong wings to take refuge under. She's got a godly husband, not a Moabite pagan husband. The name of the dead is redeemed. Malon, who was Ruth's first husband, is not forgotten. Elimelech's name is not cut off. The land will remain in Elimelech's name. The property will be inherited by Ruth's son through Boaz. Boaz is declaring redemption because he's not ashamed of what he's doing. He's not ashamed of Ruth the Moabite. She's a worthy woman. He doesn't make this deal quietly or privately. He makes it publicly. And when the deal is done, he declares it vocally, verbally, loudly, proudly in the gate of that city. And there is a Redeemer greater than Boaz. And Hebrews 2, verse 11, says that Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, is unashamed to call us brothers, all who take refuge in Him for salvation by faith alone. Ephesians 1, 18, says that there is a Redeemer who's more loving even than Boaz. One who treasures His bride more than Boaz. It's God, our Father in heaven. Ephesians 1.18 says that God considers us to be his glorious inheritance in the saints. He treasures us. When Jesus hung on the cross, he declared, it is finished. The deal is done. Redemption has been bought in full by my blood. He declared redemption before he died on the cross. That we could go back to the scriptures and remember that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and the Son so loved us that He gave His only life. No one took it from Him. He gave it freely to pay the debt that you could not pay. The wage of sin was death. He paid it in full. It is finished. You cannot offer anything to God to experience redemption, forgiveness of your sin. Offer a broken heart to Him. Offer a contrite heart to Him. 
if you offer anything to him. Come to him as needy as Naomi and Ruth were for redemption temporarily on this earth. And he will give you redemption for your souls and eternity of life in heaven with him. Praise God. Redemption is to be celebrated. That's why we gather Sunday after Sunday. To be reminded of it. And we see the celebration of the people here in this moment, at this time, celebrating and blessing the redemption that Boaz has declared and taken ownership of for these widows. Redemption's blessed. Look at verse 11 and 12. And here's the first blessing. It's a blessing over Ruth. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. What are they doing? They're, they're praying that Ruth would be fertile. That Ruth, just as Rachel and Leah had many sons, Rachel and Leah, who were married to the patriarch Jacob, whose name later became Israel, that Ruth would have a son. Rachel and Leah, they bore 12 sons and many daughters. The 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, which ultimately led to the nation of Israel. This is the blessing they're praying over Ruth. And they have no idea how prophetic it is. They have no idea how God is going to fulfill this blessing and this prayer. Because in the line of Ruth, as we will see next Sunday, comes David. And in the line of David, King David, a temporary kingdom, comes Christ the Redeemer, the King of all kings, who brings cosmic redemption to the world. The second blessing is over Boaz. Look at verse 11b. They say, May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. This is essentially a, a pronouncement of total well-being. It is a blessing of essentially saying, May all go well with you. May you be given by God power and prestige, wealth, prosperity, honor. That's what, that's what the blessing is. The witnesses, they're acknowledging that what Boaz has done is an honorable thing, and they are praying that he would be honored by what he has done that day for these widows. And he is, and here we are talking about him. There's a prophecy that's written 300 years after this. In Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that's related to this, it says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Friends, if you were here at Christmas Eve, we read this because this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, his coming. And where was he born? Bethlehem. In what tribe? the tribe of Judah. And who does he descend from? The lineage of Boaz and Ruth. As again, we will get into in more detail next Sunday. A blessing is over this house. Thirdly, look at verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Again, this is a reiteration of a blessing over Boaz's household, his family, that God would give children to Ruth, offspring. And it's an acknowledgement that all children are a blessing from the Lord and they are a gift from God as well. But why the reference to Perez and Tamar and Judah? Well, 
Obviously, it's connected to what I was just speaking of with the prophecy of Judah and the fact that Boaz is is in the tribe of Judah. But let's dig into this a little bit. Who's Perez? Takes us to Genesis 38, the story of Perez. He's mentioned here because he was an ancestor in Boaz's clan. He's living in Bethlehem. He was the offspring of Judah and Tamar. Judah, again, was of the royal kingly line, which Boaz was in. And listen to this. Tamar was a foreign woman, like Ruth. Tamar married one of Judah's sons initially, but then Judah's son died. So then, we just read Deuteronomy 25. What happens next? She married the son's brother. But then that brother died. So Judah's starting to scratch his head and go, there's a common denominator here. I got two dead sons and one daughter-in-law. Let's uh, refrain from Tamar marrying another son, lest I lose another son, right? Wasn't an honorable thing to do, but that's exactly what he did. So Tamar takes some initiative. She sees that her family is on the brink, her, her name, her line is on the brink of extinction. She doesn't have any children, so she pretends to be a lady of the night. She's called that. She tricked Judah into having relations, and she bore a son to Judah, and his name was Perez. Now, let's talk about the comparison. I already mentioned the foreign woman bit, Okay. I already mentioned the line of Judah. But these two women, Tamar, Ruth, Tamar takes initiative, but like the daughter of Lot, it was through incestuous, deceptive immorality. But Ruth, on the other hand, she takes initiative, not in that way, but in an honorable way, seeking redemption, seeking rest, seeking a husband requesting marriage at the threshing floor of Boaz. If God blessed Tamar and Judah in Perez, how much more? Boaz and Ruth, who have exhibited his hesed, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his loyalty, his worthy character. Little did these witnesses know when they were uttering these blessings that these blessings were prophecy. This wasn't just something that they wanted for Boaz and his family. These were things that God wanted for Boaz and his family and for all of us today. All who have taken refuge in Christ and have entered into the family of God, this blessing overflows upon us. Redemption is accomplished here in this text. Boaz redeemed a parcel of land. That's great. Jesus Christ redeems all creation. All of it. It will all be restored, not just a fallow field. Boaz redeemed two believing widows temporarily. It's great. Praiseworthy. We should talk about it. We are. But Jesus Christ redeems every saint who takes refuge under his wing. How? Through confession of their sin, repentance of their sin, and trusting in his saving power and work to forgive them of their sin in full, not in part. Naomi and Ruth could not redeem themselves, friends, and neither can we. And so God has taken initiative to redeem us from all lawlessness, from every wicked thought, from every evil deed. Our sin debt, your sin debt individually, goes well beyond what you can 
possibly imagine. Our sin debt is so much greater than we think. And yet, the love of God and the redemption that is in Christ is so much greater, far surpassing our sin. His mercy is more. That's the point of this text. That's the point of the Bible. That's the gospel. There is a redeemer. We could not pay the sin debt. The wage of sin is death. But Christ has accomplished redemption on our behalf at the cross. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers going all the way back to Adam. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How do we know that his payment went through? How do we know that his redemption, that the deal is sealed? How do we know that it was sufficient? How do we know that it was enough? How do we know that there's not something more? There are many people in this world who think there's something to be added to the redemption that Christ has earned, and there's not. And I want to preach loudly and I want to declare this morning to you again and again and again that it is finished. Christ has accomplished redemption. Rest in it. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Him alone. Rejoice in Him, your Savior, your Redeemer, your God. You have been forgiven in Christ. Having rested in him, you and I are to proudly, loudly declare in the streets, in the public square, in our homes, in our living rooms, in our neighborhoods, that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer to the glory of God. Psalm 107, 1 and 2 says this, and we'll close. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today is your day. Today is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Help our souls to rest through our remembrance in the greater redemption that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Save God. Save the sinners who are in this room, who are lost Save those who have not yet taken refuge under your wings. Save those who are in need of repenting of their sin, of crying to you and saying, I need redemption. I need Christ's blood to wash me clean. Save them today, this day, for your glory and for their good. And sanctify those whom you have redeemed through this beautiful gospel message. Amen.